Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In this week's episode, Dr. Lynn Kohick and Serene Musselman have a conversation with Dr. Beth Felker-Jones. Beth earned her doctorate at Duke University, and she teaches theology at Northern Seminary. She is a host here at the Alabaster Jar podcast, and she is the author of several books, including Practicing Christian Doctrine, an introduction to thinking and living theologically. In today's conversation, we talk about social media, theology, and what it means to live faithfully in today's world. All right. Well, um, Beth, it's so great to be starting off this conversation with you today. And we are recording this episode right at the beginning of 2022. How was your holiday season? Did you do anything fun with your family? It almost seems far away already, doesn't it? But, it does. Um, but I, it's always a good season. And uh, we do similar kind of not very exciting, but lovely things every year, visiting family and uh, enjoying Christmas dinner and, and so on. So um, I think the older I get, the more one can hope for Christmas is just same old, right? So That's true. I love it. Do you have a favorite Christmas dish from dinner? I'm a huge fan of the kind of traditional turkey dinner, but always, yes. always happy to take that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I agree. It, there's just and it makes the house smell so great. So and good. Then, yeah. You know, you have to strategize as you eat, or at least I do, because if I have too much turkey and not enough stuffing, I have to add more stuffing. <laughs> but then sometimes that unbalances the potatoes. And so I have to take more potatoes. And it's... Um, I really think the magic of that meal is at the whole sort of the whole thing together, right? It's Mm -hmm, not just one mm -hmm. of the foods, but everything covered by gravy. Yeah, I'm getting hungry right now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in this conversation, we're going to get into a little bit of systematic theology. That sounds like a systematic approach to eating Christmas dinner. There you go. I I can appreciate that. Well, Beth, I have to confess, I recently discovered how much I enjoy your Twitter feed, and you are hilarious on there. So if any of our listeners have not found you on Twitter, they should go check it out. It's it's a good laugh. <laughs> well, thank you. My children would be surprised. They don't think I'm funny at all. So, Oh, well, that's, the, that's what comes with having kids, right? I'm frequently told by my nine-year-old that I'm not funny, so <laughs> I can relate. You posed uh, a poll, actually, on there recently, which I thought was pretty fun. You asked your Twitter followers if they um, could only have three hymnals in their collection, what would it be? And so I thought I would throw that question right back at you and find out if you could only have three hymnals in your collection, what would they be? So a bit of confession about the question. I uh, I love to ask people nerdy things, which are fun, but also I was looking for some good hymnals because I'm not familiar with as many as I would like. Uh, I've loved the United Methodist hymnal since I was little, and I often use it in my personal spiritual life as well as when I need a hymn. Um, but I, I was hoping to get some fun ideas of more hymnals. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I grew up in a church that used hymnals as well. And uh, they are, it's amazing to go back and read some of the lyrics and also the stories behind 
uh, the people that wrote um, these hymns. I think of the stories behind like um, It Is Well or Amazing Grace, these hymns that are so familiar to so many of us, but they have really powerful stories behind them, right? Absolutely. Hymns are a big reason I'm a theologian. So. Oh, that's awesome. Tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, just, uh, you know, as you just said, they often get at really important theological concepts and um, those captured my imagination, um, even when I was pretty young. So uh, they continue to shape how I think about theology, but also um, those beautiful concepts, I guess, drew me in. Mm, that's amazing. You um, also post when you're reading certain books on Twitter. And I thought I would ask you, um, is there a book that you've read recently that really impacted you? Um, and what would that book be? Yeah, I love to read all kinds of things, not just theology, but um, fiction and so on. Uh, I recently finished a memoir uh, by a lawyer named Kian Julie Wang. Uh, the book is titled Beautiful Country, which uh, she tells us uh, is a literal translation of uh, the Chinese uh language Chinese name for America. Um, she uh, came to the US uh, with her parents when she was young, uh, maybe a first grader. Uh, and the memoir is written very much in her voice as a child, uh, just beautiful uh, in uh, recalling how things appear to a child, but also utterly revelatory in that um, she tells about a world that many Americans don't know about, um, uh, a world of sweatshops and hunger and racism. Um, and uh, it was just a privilege to be taken into her story to get, get a glimpse of another life. Uh, one of the reasons I love to read. So definitely recommend Beautiful Country by Wang. Wow. Yeah. Sounds like a powerful story. I am always being in seminary right now. I have to uh, be very intentional about reading books that aren't just what's assigned for class. Um, so I just checked out a book from the library the other day because I told myself I was going to read some fiction. <laughs> but kudos to you. I'm not sure I made time for it in seminary. So good, good job. <laughs> well, I'm only about a chapter in, so don't congratulate me yet. <laughs> Um, but I am also reading a book that is assigned for a class this semester. It's one that you wrote, actually, and it's Practicing Christian Doctrine. I'm taking a theology class with you right now, which has been so great so far. And we are currently talking about Christology in our class. And the topic of the hypostatic union came up. And I have to confess, those are not uh, words that I use in everyday conversation. Um, so I thought that it would be interesting for you to share with our listeners a little bit of what those words mean. You actually, another one of your polls that you posted on Twitter, you asked for um, what people thought was the most marvelous theological idea and hypostatic union won out. So clearly uh, it has uh, some proponents at least. <laughs> and I think when our listeners hear what hypostatic union means, they'll agree. So would you mind uh, just unpacking that for us a little? It was the clear winner, at least from the options I, I had to present it there. Um, so I think your life would be more interesting if you use these words every day, just yeah, throw right? hypostatic union into you know, a conversation. <laughs> uh, I'm often impatient with theological jargon, uh, but there are times when we need a special set of terms, right, or a special phrase to describe something really unique. Um, and that is what uh, the phrase hypostatic union describes. It describes the unique uh, union between Jesus's divine and human natures. 
so the fact uh, that our Lord Jesus Christ uh, is uh, one Lord, one person, uh, hypostatic means personal, uh, but that he has two natures, uh, fully divine, fully human, and that he's not somehow then two guys, a divine guy and a human guy, but he's one guy, one person. Uh, that's the union part. Uh, and it is unique in the sense that there are no other hypostatic unions. Uh, this is a phrase we use technically in theology to say, uh, this is the only time this has happened, right? It's a miracle. There's nothing like it. Um, and it's such a serious union, such a um, you know metaphysical union, if you want to use that kind of language, uh, that it uh, persists forever. Uh, it's it's the truth about Jesus from here on out is that he is fully divine and fully human. Uh, that's who he still is for us today uh, from uh, his father's right hand in heaven um, and who he will always be for us right uh, into glory. Um, it's a great concept. Yeah, it doesn't get much better than that. When I uh, was uh, teaching undergrad, uh, there was a student who was talking with me. You know, students will come by and talk about their lives. And this particular student was talking about dating. He was dating a woman not uh, at uh, the, the college. She was at a different uh, school. Um, and as they were getting to know each other, things were starting to fray at the end and things weren't going great. And one day when they were just kind of getting ready to call it off, I guess he, he happened to stop by and he said, well, yeah, I just don't think this is going to work. I mean, well, she just doesn't hold to the hypostatic union. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh my word, wait, I got to look that up. What? <laughs> what are we talking about here? So there are times when in the average course, at least of a Wheaton undergrad, some uh, theology teacher there is doing their job. That's they, right. That's exactly yeah. right. They need to um. pat themselves on the back. But it, but it did, you know, and so I guess I, uh, if you could imagine what that student was thinking, why did it really matter so much if, the, if he was thinking about spending his life with, a, uh, with someone, but they didn't hold to the hypostatic union? What, <laughs> what would have been the problems with that? What would have come up? What would have... Yeah. Well, first I'll say, um, I think it is a truth that is so marvelous. It is prone to be disbelieved, uh, as uh, Cyril uh, of Alexandria would say. Um, that is, it's really, it's really hard to imagine that God would really become one of us, right? Um, and so we're prone to think maybe he sort of kind of just became one of us. Maybe he's pretending to be one of us. Maybe he became one of us for 30 years, but then he stopped being one of us. And the truth of the hypostatic union says no to all that. He really, truly became one of us for his love of us, right? Um, the implications of that are you know, all over scripture, but one of my favorite places is in Hebrews 4, um, where we're reminded that we don't have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, uh, but one who's like us in every way, right? Um, we need Jesus to be like us in every way because it teaches us uh, that he's here for us, uh, that he loves us, that he knows us, um, that he's all in for us. I think that's such an encouraging truth and reminder. It's that passage from Hebrews. I've often returned to it in difficult seasons of my life because it's so encouraging to be reminded that I don't serve and believe in a God who's distant from what I'm experiencing, but that through Jesus, 
he he is he became like us he has experienced hurt and abandonment and many of the things that we experience and walk through in our own lives. And in your book, you actually talk about this a little bit. You relate that um, the same Jesus who commands the heavens is also the one who wept when his friend died. Uh, is there a moment in Jesus's life when you look at scripture and reflect on your own personal journey? Is there a moment from Jesus's life where you saw his his divinity and his humanity come together that um, that has stuck with you or maybe has been particularly impactful to your own faith? Mm -hmm. Over the years, I've thought more and more about what it means that Jesus prays. Um, uh, theologians have thought about this through the centuries, right? It's pretty astonishing to claim that God prays. <laughs> that is exactly what we're claiming when we say that Jesus praise, and particularly um, his anguished prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, where he um, pours out his wish that the suffering to come would not have to be, right, in which he says that um, it should be as the Father wills it to be. Uh, what's more human, right, than to not want to go through the hard thing? Uh What's more divine than to be able to submit your will um, to the Father, right? Uh, and to be able to do so as a human. Um, there's mystery there, but uh, it means, among other things, that when we pray, we're like Jesus. Uh, and because we're united to Jesus, we're able um, to relate to the Father as he does um, and to begin to seek that kind of transformed life in which uh, our wills and our lives too are, are conformed uh, to the Father's will. Um, all that's possible because he's both God and man, right? Yeah, that's beautiful. I think what this conversation reminds me of is how important it is for us to shape our theology. It, you know, we can go travel from this idea of hypostatic union, which uses words that aren't common in our everyday language. Like you mentioned there, it's a technical term. But then when we really unpack it, we see how much of an impact it really has for our day-to-day -day life. So um, share with me a little bit of your journey into theology and writing and teaching theology and um, maybe why you, as you teach, you see this as something that should shape our everyday lives. Could you talk um, to us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's my heart, that theology should shape our everyday lives. Um, and I guess that's because for me it has, right? Um I'm kind of a nerdy person, as are most professors. And so I like to read a lot of books, and I've always read a lot of books. And so uh, when I went to graduate school and got to read more and more books about Jesus, I got, you know, pretty excited about it. Um, but I also just became convinced uh, that so many of us at the church have been given, you know, weak tea um, when there's really good, I don't know, pick your analogy, wine. Coca-Cola to drink. I'm a Coca-Cola girl myself, but you know, um, uh, that people are hungering for something more, right? Um, and that uh, the strong meat of good theology uh, not only provides personal comfort, personal knowledge of God, um, but direction for our lives, right? And understanding of how uh, to enter into the life of discipleship uh, in all kinds of places where we need discernment um, and we need guidance. So I've just found in theology riches and beauty, um, 
Um, and uh, my vocation in life is to share that with the church, to equip leaders in the church, uh, to be able to share it uh, with others. And I will I will go to my grave convinced that uh, people are going to get excited about this with me. Sometimes they do. So, Beth, I'm sure that you've had uh, experiences in the classroom where uh, the kind of the light went off or, or the joy exploded as a student had a similar experience of kind of uh, uh, falling in love with a, with the doctrine, if I could say it that way. Or maybe you have a story of something funny that happens as someone was trying to figure out uh, a doctrine, maybe both. I'd love to hear just stories about how your students have experienced the theology that you love so much. Yeah, I may be occasionally funny, but I'm probably also, you know, too earnest for my own good sometimes. And I, I, I think of lots of earnestness in the classroom. Um, I think more than even specific stories, I remember people, right? And I can remember their faces um, lighting up at uh, certain ideas or getting excited about certain ideas and talking through them. I think uh, often those transformative moments happen less in the explanation of a concept even though I can get really excited about the explanation of a concept and more in an encounter with a text, which is really an encounter with another believer, right? An encounter with another Christian. Um, I think of a student encountering uh, Martin Luther King's letter to from a Birmingham jail um, uh, and just the giant smile on his face as he said, uh, this text absolutely destroyed me. In the best possible way, right? Um, I think of a student who encountered Augustine in his confessions, right, where he tells the story of his own journey for God, um, and who connected to that journey and was able to, you know, see himself in, in Augustine's story. So um, those aren't really very good instances of storytelling, but um, I, I think of the persons attached. You know, as you were talking, I was I was thinking of Julian of Norwich, who um, is a mystic, who is. Uh, writes this incredible uh, vision that she has had and then contemplates it over the years. Um, you know, the, but why is it that, that fewer women are theologians than men down through mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. ages? What, what do you think is going on there? Yeah, I should say Julian of Norwich is someone with whom I have had a transformative personal encounter, right? Her story um, has spoken to me at various times over the years uh, and continues to do so. Um, she's known as a mystic, but really we could call Julian a theologian just as well as we call Augustine one. Uh, in her text, The Revelations of Divine Love, she treats all the major doctrines in theology, right? Uh, but as a woman, she has to do so in a way uh, that fits the prescribed gendered allowances of her time, right? Um, And so uh, we get not a treatise like we would from Thomas Aquinas, but uh, an account of God's work in her life, really, right? Um, I think that uh, many women uh, through the centuries uh, have simply not had the space for that because of how their lives have been prescribed uh, by roles for women. Um, But I also think one of the ways sin works in the world is women are often not held in as great of esteem as men are. Um, and so gifts as theologians um, have not had 
all the opportunities to be expressed or even to be remembered. Uh, Julian's text is interesting. Uh, it's sort of by accident that we have it, right? Uh, perhaps there are other texts by medieval women that didn't happen to get preserved um, in the way that hers has and has been able to bless us you know, centuries uh, later. Um, uh, one of the things Julian says in, in her text is that uh, uh, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but because I'm, I'm a woman, should I not tell the goodness of God? Right. Um, and I love that. I, and I think that's exactly what she does. Uh, she takes it on herself to tell the goodness of God um, in a way that makes sense with who she is and that is allowed where she is. As we uh, think about connecting these stories of women from our history to today and how they help us shape our theology, and we're talking about practicing our theology and our doctrine, what uh, would you say to women who might be listening today who have never thought about theology from this perspective? Mm -hmm. Of um, Maybe they've read books or they've read scripture, but um, taking this active role in what they believe in the shaping of their faith and theology, uh, where do we begin? How do we start to think this way as women? Yeah. Um well, if you love books, right, uh, <laughs> then, then keep reading them. Read more. Dig in. Read the great books. Read some of the, the other books. So many of the books marketed to women are not theology, right, but are um, aimed at particular roles in our lives, important roles, right, mothering, et cetera. Um, but um, the, the straight-up theology books often, often don't get marketed to us. That doesn't mean we can't read them. You know, I think often of the parable of the talents, um, when I think about many of the gifted women that I know, I think God has given so many, uh, so many gifts, so many gifts to his daughters. Uh, and this world uh, will say, bury those talents. Uh, you're not meant to use them. Uh, but uh, the spirit says to us otherwise, right? Dig the things up and invest them and uh, see what happens. And, uh, not all of us are going to be, you know, theology teachers. Um, uh, that would be that would be a rough life for for the masses, I think. Um, uh, but uh, all of us are theologians, um, and whether we are good ones or bad ones, uh, knowledgeable ones or ones who've not gotten the chance to be exposed to many of the riches of, of Christian thought. Uh, that can depend on us to at least some extent. So dig in is my advice. Dig in, dig up the treasures, dig up the talents um, and invest what God has given you. That's wonderful. Well, you are actually in the process of launching a new doctorate program at Northern Seminary, which could be a great next step for someone who's really wanting to take this to the next level. So tell us a little bit about that new doctorate program that you're launching. What What is it called? What's it focused on? Yeah, I'm very excited about it. It goes to the heart of what we've been talking about. Uh, the new program is the Doctorate in Doctrine and Ministry. So the doctrine side, the theology, and the ministry side, the way we live our lives of discipleship, right? Uh, our work in churches and in so many other kinds of organizations as well. Um, so the program is for um, a student, a minister, uh, a pastor, a professional in, in Christian leadership uh, who 
cares about theology, who's interested in theology, and wants to think about how theology connects to their calling in the church and or in the world, right? Um, it's for a student who is interested in the connections between you know, what we believe about salvation, the doctrine of soteriology, and uh, their work in prison ministry, right? Um, for someone who wants to connect Christology to how we think about our bodies uh, in this world. Uh, there, it will open up ways for people to make all kinds of connections between uh, doctrine and, and ministry, theology and uh, discipleship and uh, Christian life. And uh, people who think of themselves perhaps as a pastor theologian or people who've never thought of themselves that way uh, might well thrive in the program. I hope it opens up a space for theology to really refresh the church um, and for the students in the program uh, to do good work that lets them make connections between you know, the solid teaching of Christian faith uh, and the world that God loves. Wonderful. And when is this program launching, Beth? Applications are open now. You can find them on Northern Seminary's website. Uh, and uh, we expect our first cohort to enroll for the fall or maybe late summer, actually. So exciting. Well, Beth, it has been wonderful discussing theology with you today, and we look forward to you being on here on the Alabaster Jar, hosting many more episodes in the future. And uh, thank you so much for being here. It's been great. Grand fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Beth, so much. This is a great conversation. You've been listening to another episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so that you can be notified when we upload new episodes every Tuesday. If you would like to learn more about Beth's work, you can check out the link in today's episode description and purchase her book, Practicing Christian Doctrine. We'll see you back here next Tuesday for another episode of the Alabaster Jar.